Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. everyone, it's uh, Roxanne Durhaj of Authentic Living with Roxanne. Today I have uh, a colleague, uh, uh, Jessica Potts, uh, for joining us today. Hi, Jessica, how are you? Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Jessica is, um, has been in her field for quite a while in leadership, so I invited her on because I think there's so much that we can continue to learn about leadership. So I'll read a little bit about Jessica and then we'll jump right into things. Uh, Jessica is a recovering government worker. That's uh, <laughs> makes me snickle. Um, she who's now spends her time with a right, wide range of public and private sector clients as president of Inspired Strategy Group Inc. Uh, she builds high performance leaders and teams. Uh, she sustains um, sustaining employee stakeholder and in community engagement along with uh, facilitating strategic processes. She's known for her energy and she is the energizer bunny. Trust me, I've spent time with her. Um, strong, strong optimism and belief in pursuing the things that you are most passionate about. Jessica's life purpose is summarized simply as seeing you at your best. Awesome. So Jessica, now I know you've been doing this kind of work for a while. So um, what I often say is I like to know a bit about you, just you. Now, I know, I know a bit about you and I know we've spent some time because, but I'd really like the, the people listening or viewing to, to get to know about, a bit about you. So tell me a bit about how do you go from, you know, whether it's college or university to uh, leadership? Yeah, wow. It's been a, a pretty amazing journey. And uh, I, I say that very humbly. I don't consider myself a wild success, but I do consider myself extremely happy and satisfied and fulfilled. So to me, that makes me uh, a success. So as we talk about authentic living, I think back to how things started I, uh, in, in my career. My first job was in retail, which uh, was met with less than uh, uh, rave results from uh, graduating the top of my class and then going firmly into retail. Um, but I quickly found what, what I consider my dream job, or at the time I did anyway, um, working with entrepreneurs. So I managed a government resource center helping entrepreneurs pursue their dreams. And this was through 2008 and the financial crisis. So there was a lot of workers that were getting laid off in their fields and deciding, uh, what am I going to do for myself now? And they would come to me and I would help them navigate the rules and regulations uh, through the government uh, processes and red tape. And during that time, I was invited to join a, a young person's networking group. Here I was in my early 20s giving advice to people as old as my parents about how to start and sustain successful businesses. So, you know, I, I'm sure you've talked about imposter syndrome. This was a, a very real thing that I was experiencing at the time. And so having joined a young person's networking group, they uh, sort of helped me feel as though I belonged somewhere. Um, and about six months later, after joining this group, the, the fellow who had asked me to join 
said to me, so what do you think? And I said, honestly, it's amazing, but it's also extremely humbling because I look at you guys and I see that you're at the top of your field. You're at the top of your game. And it leaves me wondering what makes me so special. And so instantly that person reached back to um, his bookshelf and handed me a book. It's actually this book um, called StrengthsFinder 2.0, which is written by the grandson of the... Uh, grandfather of strengths-based psychology or positive psychology. And so that book, the concept is, is so fascinating. Um, it, it talks about a story when you were in elementary school and you were, uh, it, maybe you got straight A's except for a B in math. What would your parents make you study? And of course the answer is math, but this book kind of flipped, flips things on its end and says, by the time we get to our age and stage in life, we're going to be specializing in something. So the concept of well-rounded becomes flawed. We should all be shining like a star, expanding on our points of excellence rather than trying to be well-rounded. And where well-rounded comes in is when you take a team of stars that, that have all discovered um, what their talents are and bring them together, then you get a well-rounded team. And so I, I love this concept. Um, it took me a couple weeks to get through the book and to, to do the assessment that comes with it. But once I did, I found uh, clarity and confidence were two of the biggest byproducts. Suddenly I understood how I could create value for my clients. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's not interesting, right? Like in my, in my various environments or even me being part of my yearly core, uh, performance evaluation, right? Where, how do we bench ourselves? We kind of look at it and say, oh, well, I'm good at this, this, and this, but, but these are the areas you need to improve on. And automatically, what, as human beings, as we know, what do we do? We focus on, you know, we forget all the resourcing of all the great things that we do, and we focus on the one area that somebody says, well, no, you need to improve here and here and here. So it makes sense that looking at it from a, a resource point of view, that if you could really look at, I'm actually really good at a lot of things. However, um, these two or three areas potentially are not, that's not, that's not my God-given gifts. It's kind of like, I have to work really, really hard at those. And, you know, that way I don't beat up myself if, if it's an area that seems to always come up in my life. Exactly. And so um, one of the, the concepts of strengths-based development is all about not just finding things that you're good at, but the things that bring you energy. And it's really easy to feel drained after doing some of those things that we might look at as, as weaknesses. Um, Gallup defines strengths as um, a talent, your naturally reoccurring patterns of thinking, feeling, and behaving honed when we can can harness them and apply them intentionally then we get consistently excellent results which is our strengths mm -hmm. our weaknesses can also be not just things that we don't have in our lives or, or areas that we're deficient but it can also be an area of strength that you haven't reined in so i'll give you an example um, there's one uh, the gallops identified 34 different talent themes everybody has talent everyone is unique and uh, the assessment will typically give you your top five, although you can expand further. And one of them is called WOO. WOO stands for winning others over. These are people that enjoy the challenge of meeting new people and breaking the ice. But if your WOO goes unchecked, then you might be that person that's trying too hard 
to get people to like you. You might make business decisions that are not productive. You might give a discount to a friend, um, thinking more about the, the friendship angle than about the profitability angle. So the, the same way that our talents, those natural ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving can be our greatest strengths, they can also be our greatest weakness. And, and an analogy that I love to use is, I look at talent like a wild horse. So I want you to think of a Mustang, a wild horse just grazing around in, in the grass. Um, this horse might be able to run the fastest or jump the highest, but unless you put a saddle on it and intentionally tell it what to do, it may end up eating the grass instead of finishing the race. So th there's an example of how our talents need to be harnessed, need to be saddled, uh, just like a wild horse. So when... You know, I think all of us can experience that because I know I am very macro. <laughs> so my, uh, and, you know, and I, I, you know, not having the guidance, you know, early on when I started to like different management roles and stuff like that. Um, I always used to say, well, how come this is so easy for me? Certain things, right? I can get in, I can be strategic. I can see what needs to get done high level. And then you put me down to like to the actual pragmatic, uh, tactical steps and I've struggled, like I would do it, but it was like, I literally was, it was like root canal daily. I was like, okay, great. I've got to work on this. And, you know, and then, you know, when I started, I got, um, you know, connected with an organizational psychologist in the different roles that I played, then it really helped me realize that, wow, you know, this could be something that you could get better at, but if you're in a position where you, you could have somebody else do it for you, um, you know, the energy savings that I had, but I recognized that that Jessica was profound because then I was like, wow, if I gave this up, if I had to do this for two hours, I actually gained four hours doing other things that I was better at. Exactly. You know, so I don't, so when you work with someone with uh, Gallup, when they look at their strengths um, kind of perspective versus the areas that they're, that, that's not their core, say, um, essence, how do you kind of work with them? Like you said, they, they, can, they can enhance those, but is there a point where sometimes you say to them, um, maybe you just have to accept that there's certain skill sets that will never be enhanced along the way for you? Yeah, I, I do. I do believe that. I mean, as a child, we're told you can be anything that you want to be, um, but... I, I, I agree. You can be anything you want to be, but you can't necessarily do anything you want to do. And the, as you said, some of those things make us feel um, like timeless time. Just you get, you get in a flow and all of a sudden it's two o'clock in the morning and where did the time go? Uh, it, you had no idea that the time had passed by so quickly. Other things, it feels like hours when maybe it's only been minutes. And that doesn't mean that you're not necessarily good at it. Administration is one of those areas that we tend to use as an example. Um, I'm very proficient at administration, but it bogs me down. It weighs me down and it takes away that natural energy, that natural motivation that we get by doing something that we love. And I think that you know, when we think about why this is so important from a productivity standpoint, you know, we're globally, we're, we're looking at a productivity crisis in, in many ways. We've got a skill, we've got skill shortages, we've got um, jobs without people, people without jobs. And so to try to bring those together by helping people understand how they work and how they can be more productive um, is one of the answers to, to that. And I think that inherently, People want to be valued 
and they want to be of value. And when I say of value, I mean a value in a way that lights them up, a value in a way that brings people energy. And it seems, uh, it almost sounds hokey pokey, airy fairy, but at the end of the day, we just all want to feel great about the work that we're doing. We just, you know, to leave with a bounce in your step, knowing that you've done something that was impactful, that was valuable, and that made you feel great to work, you know, to, to, to work for the people, to work for the profit, and to work for the greater good. Um, that's, that's one of the big trends that, that I've seen, especially over the years, is that people need to have that purpose, and they need to have the alignment with their own values. And you also see it on the other end, right? If, if when management, or let's say, you know, you're hiring, right? That you're hiring, you know, what I saw across um, my kind of consulting situation with different companies, that a lot of managers got hired because they produced. So they were good at whatever the skill set was um, on the front line. And because they were a high producer, say, for instance, in, in sales, we'll make them a sales manager or, you know, a finance manager or whatever. And then these people get into those positions and they're still good at the job, but they're not so good at, say, the management piece. And that's where you kind of get that disconnect around skill skill, like what skills do I have? I'm very, very good at say finance, but I'm, I'm not so good at managing people. And that skill deficit oftentimes is a disconnect um, with, with employees because they're looking for a connection. Um, you, know, at, you know, regardless of the different positions that I've had, which is so true what you're saying is, I always want to know, how did I do? Yeah. You expect it in a way because it's kind of like, not that you're expecting that pat on your back all the time, but you just want to kind of have a general sense, not at performance evaluation time. That's another thing, but kind of generally through your week or through your month, I'm kind of wanting a sense of, am I on the right path for what's being expected of me? Yeah. And uh, to your point, I think management skills are one of the most underestimated skills. Um, oftentimes they're associated with what, what we sort of previously knew as soft skills and soft skills are undergoing a rebranding to core skills, which sort of underscores the importance of these skills, relationship building, critical thinking, the ability to relate to people, problem solving. These are all skills that um, become really, really important for managers. And, and in your example, you're right, just because you're good at sales doesn't necessarily make you a great sales manager. Oftentimes we see people getting promoted to their highest level of incompetence, which isn't uh, a great way to think about it, but just because you were great at sales doesn't make you a great sales manager or, or vice versa. Um, I've also seen managers who are very proficient with their management skills, but don't necessarily get the respect they deserve because they don't have the technical savvy. Uh, maybe they didn't come up as a salesperson in our example, but they really understand how to motivate and energize people. So um, the importance of, of placing value on those management skills um, becomes even more and more important. Um, and when we talk about that in, in teams and in management, you asked, uh, how do I do it? Um, part of what I do can be summarized in, in a quote. Um, we judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge others by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge others by their actions. And so we may not know the intention somebody has. We may only see the actions that they produce. And that might turn us off. 
we might we might think that they've done something. Uh, the results may not be um, the, the best or, or may rub us the wrong way, but we don't necessarily appreciate that maybe they were trying to do something for the greater good, something that aligns with the, the vision, mission, values, and purpose of, of the organization or of our team. And so to help people really understand what the motivation is behind their actions. And I'll use an example. I have um, a committee member who uh, will, will he, he comes across as confrontational. We might have a meeting and something, uh, a, a place of, um, of uncertainty or, um, um, or conflict might come up. And he's the first one to jump in and, and sort of call it out. And other people see that as um, combative or, or, or um, desiring conflict. But once we did the assessment with this individual, we found that he possesses a talent, a natural ability um, to clarify, to get to seek emotional clarity, and to do that through being direct and decisive. So in his case, he was turning off the people around him, but his intentions were extremely pure in that he just wanted to get past, you know, cut through the BS, if you will, and get to an emotionally clear place, emotional clarity for the team and for the good of the team. So once we understood what his intentions were, we could understand that the actions, even though they may have rubbed some people the wrong way around the boardroom table, his intentions were very noble. And so now we use that, we utilize that, um, that bluntness, that ability to be very direct and, and decisive, we use that uh, in our meetings as sort of checks and balances. So he's become a very valuable member of the team now that we understand what his intentions are. And it's so it's so interesting that you say that because I, you know, in my in my tenure, I've uh, ran several different environments, and in one particular uh, clinic that I ran, I think I had ten different personalities, if that's possible. <laughs> And, um, you know, I, I, like, like you were saying, um, you know, that whole element, I was very young and um, walking into this position, I had uh, some credibility with some background, but I was just starting off in my career. It was my first management position. And, you know, and when you look at it, it's kind of like, you know, it's kids in the playground. It's look, it feels like, you know, of course, they're trying to get a sense of me because I'm young. Yes, you've got some background. Yes, you've got the education you know, but I, I don't know what you're bringing to the table. And they had had poor management prior to me coming on. So, so to some degree, they were shuttling to understand who I was. Can they trust me? Trust me, know me, like me. And can I, can they allow me to manage them? Because, you know, like you, they were twice my age, most of this team. And after a while, I was like, as a young manager, I was like, okay, well, like, when are people going to stop throwing sand in each other's eyes? Quite literally, it felt like it. And then, what I realized it was just the element of what had happened prior to me really was it was not personal and different personalities. So some people I could relate to because, you know, I don't know if you know True Colors, which is a, 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 like a, so I was, I'm a gold blue. So guess what? Anybody gold or blue, I was all good with, right? Because they thought like me and they understood me. The greens, oh my goodness. They were the microscopic. So guess what they did for me, Jessica? They kept, they were churning me all the time for everything microscopic. And you had the people that just like, you know, the, you know, the oranges of the world, which like to, they like to have fun, right? But they are still productive. So after a while, kind of knowing and getting to know them, there was so much strength in that room of 10. Um, and, you know, once I recognized it with guidance and coaching, those types of things, we could work together. But I, it could have gone quite poorly. You know, yeah, 
Yeah, it, it can. And so you're right. The the uh, there's a famous quote from the that founder of um, strengths-based psychology or grandfather of strengths-based psychology. He says, we learn more from our successes than we do from our failures. So by studying the successes of, of the team, but also of those individuals, those 10 different personalities of, in the room, we can find ways to um, scale. We can find ways to... Um, uh, to recreate those circumstances where we felt successful uh, individually and as a team and get the best um, results out of, uh, out of everyone. So you're right. It starts with knowing yourself, then knowing the team, and then working towards a common goal. And that's something that one of my mentors taught me uh, from, from the get-go, that that was always her mantra. Know yourself, know your team, and then work together towards the goal. Absolutely. So, you know, I I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you back a little bit because I know that you shared with me kind of um, how you think and feel about uh, community and it was something that struck me when we were having lunch and spending some time together and kind of the passion that you bring to what you do now. So I want you to share with people kind of your beginnings as, as a young girl and kind of why connection and community is such a key foundational piece for you in what you do out there in the corporate world? Uh, yeah, I, I'm happy to share. Um, uh, one of the things that we talked about was um, about why community is, is so important. So I'm involved with two initiatives that in the last four years have raised over $400,000 for local charities. And um, I do that just to tie it in by working with a team. So we've got amazing teams of volunteers. And one of my rules is you don't get to help unless you are doing what you do best. Um, I want everybody to get that sense of accomplishment, to feel, um, to feel like they are contributing in the way that, that, that they are valued and, uh, and can bring value. And so it really starts with, um, as uh, when I was six, my, my parents split up and I moved to a town where I was the only person with my last name. And this was a very small town, a very privileged um, town. My mom made sure that uh, she put me into the best schools. Um, after uh, my parents split up. And uh, that meant, uh, again, a humbling experience that here were, you know, um, again, privileged people that, that I grew up alongside. Um, meanwhile, my mom, uh, this would have been 1987-ish, made $16,000 a year in her job and struggled to, to, to keep us normal, I, I will say, because I never really had an appreciation of, of how poor we were. And um, so when it comes to understanding community and belonging, those were always things that were really important to me. And, and there's one story that I remember sharing with you at, at our lunch, where uh, it was grade six, we had just been exposed to skiing for the first time. You could choose downhill skiing or cross-country skiing. And we chose cross-country skiing and my best friend and I got a taste for it and then wanted to go back after the school ski day. Well, I had no appreciation, like zero appreciation of what an expensive sport skiing is. And so when I said to my mom, you know, I, I really want to go skiing, uh, can, can, you know, do you have any money that I can use to go skiing? And I think we, we didn't need much. It was probably $18 or something. And, and again, this is like early 90s uh, currency, but um, we just didn't have it. And so my mom was bound and determined she wasn't going to say no. She, she never wanted me to have that full weight, that full appreciation of, of what it meant to live uh, in a single parent household 
um, right at the poverty line. And so we started going through all of the couch cushions. We went through all of her purses. We went through all of the pockets. And uh, finally, in what was the 1980s, early 90s dream one-piece ski suit, it was purple with geometric fluorescent pattern, um, cut cutouts on it. Uh, there was a, a, a breast pocket and I reached in there and I felt paper and it was one of the most exciting moments of my life and I pulled it out and there was my mom still going through the couch cushions and I said 20, 40, 60, 80, we're rich mom, we're rich and that's what it felt like at the time, it, you know, to find that much money, I mean even in today's standards to find $80 in a, in a pocket is a huge fine but back then um, that really made me appreciate the first of all the sacrifices that my mom made she was an amazing manager she let me understand the poverty that or or anything less than normal life and that always gave me a sense of belonging and um and, and also made me want to give back uh, so, so when I think about the, the course that my life's taken, there's always been a huge element of, of volunteerism and of building community in there. So, so you know, it's what, what an inspiring, and I know two of the big events uh, are here in, in Niagara. I see them all over social all the time. And, um, you know, the passion that I know that you put into that, uh, you know, I can just imagine what you do with the clients that you coach, because you're bringing that real understanding of what it was to not fit in right? Or feel that you're not fitting in, especially as a, a, a young child. And then really looking at things, at, at really what was important around connection and then bringing that element with you to, you know, a team or, you know, between different levels of uh, management, you know, and, and I mean, you walk into an, you know, like me over the years, you walk into a corporate environment and you're like, wow, there's a lot going on here. Right? And then you, if, when you kind of, when you're the ex subject matter expert being brought in, you have to kind of almost take an aerial, aerial shot to, to, quite literally from the top, but all, I always say from the bottom too, because it's a different perspective from the bottom versus the top. And you become the thread that's going to weave everything together, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and it, it's interesting because when you mentioned the community um, and I, I talked about the money that we raised, but the most important thing, we, we both of um, my big events, uh, which I consider more programs than one day events. Um, we have three strategic pillars. And so while it's often mistaken for a fundraising event um, or, or in one case, uh, even a boxing event, the first and most important priority for us is to build community. So we build community, we raise funds, and, and then we put on a world-class boxing event. Um, and the reason why I say that that's so important and why it's so well communicated within every level of, of our organization is because we will make decisions that might sacrifice fundraising for the broader uh, objective of building the community. So if, if you know, we, we've had to turn down sponsors in the past because they didn't align with uh, our vision or the vision of some of our most strategic partners. So it's really about understanding those core fundamentals that, that helps lead to the greatest success. Which speaks to the whole element of what I talk about, which is being authentic. Because if you're, if you're incongruent with what your core values are, um, then how is that going to translate? How is that going to come off you, um, whether you're the CEO to the person um, that's the very first point of preference uh, to you know, the public? If that's out of alignment, then, you know, 
obviously there's going to be ripple effects of, of, of pools of conflict along the way because, you know, it's kind of like the CEO, you give him the high level executive <laughs> summary and the frontline person has all, all, the, all the information and then, the, you know, it kind of tears down, but it's everybody having that same vision, that same mission. But I think even more so, like you said, it's that connection to why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, purpose is becoming more important as a driver. Um, we talk about the, the evolution um, of the workplace and of, of the manager. And when we look to particularly the millennial generation, they're saying, I don't want a paycheck. I want a purpose. I don't want a boss. I want a coach. Um, you know, I, and, and these are the types of, of behaviors and attitudes that we're really seeing rise to the surface in, in our workforces. So it becomes more and more important to have that common purpose and then um, what we call cascading messaging. Um, because you can't just take for granted, as you said, you've got people on the front lines and you've got people at the top. Um, how do you make sure that, that there is that alignment? As, as you say, alignment is one of my favorite words. So making sure that, that uh, it's aligned to each individual and to the broader purpose. Um, that, that's one of the biggest keys. So, so give me the, the kind of the typical kind of project that you would be uh, approached to work on and kind of your process that you go through like because I know recently you were just sharing with me that you know you got a pretty big project that you could be working on so what's you know that or you just generally because you've been doing this for a long time how, how does the typical kind of client come to you and kind of what's your kind of you know mind map in your head that you utilize to kind of approach the project yeah so and uh, one size never fits all um, most of my clients come through referrals. So um, uh, somebody who's had a great experience in the past will um, uh, be having a beer with a friend and that friend will say, oh, I'm having this issue with my team or I, I really want um, my organization to get on board with my vision or, uh, you know, something along those lines. Or sometimes it's, geez, things are going really well, how do we stay at the top of our game? And so it, it'll start with a conversation like that. Uh, there'll be some sort of referral that happens or maybe maybe somebody will find me through website or through social. Um, and then uh, really it's combining the, this notion of strengths-based development with um, my strategic background. So for 10 years, I helped entrepreneurs um, start and grow their businesses through developing business plans, marketing plans, um, all sorts of plans. <laughs> Um, but the plan is only as good as the people implementing it. So it's really about combining the strategy with the strengths of the individuals. You can have the most solid feasibility study, but, the, but if it doesn't connect with the people, if it doesn't move them, if it's not aligned, and if there's not uh, that, that common purpose, then it, the strategic plan just ends up on a shelf somewhere and uh, never gets used. So what I do is I start the process maybe with mission, vision, values, or if, if they've got something like that, then um, we'll maybe do an audit of those mission, vision, values and make sure that it aligns with the people that are at the table now versus say 10 years ago when it was created. Um, we talk a lot about um, time, talent, and treasure. So where do the people 
again, that are sitting around the table, where do, what do they value? And then we'll identify some of the legacy pieces of the organization that they're working with and how can we connect, where are the, the synergies and how do we connect that and then ultimately operationalize it. So that comes with a, a lot of training, um, leadership training, management skills, coaching skills, um, tapping into people's strengths, doing individual coaching with, with teams. And then again, as we talked about that cascading messaging, so we'll typically start with um, the owner or general manager or supreme leader of the organization and then um, and their team. And then we'll, we'll build in systems that maybe we'll bring in the next level, the management team, and then maybe we'll bring in the supervisory team. It just depends on the size of the organization. But again, cascading that messaging so that we make sure that there's alignment all the way through. And sometimes we'll do stakeholder consultation to, to see what, what do those frontline people or what do partners or clients or customers um, or suppliers, what do they think about the organization? Where do they see opportunities or trends or challenges that could be faced? And then ultimately bringing it back to the team and saying, here it is, how are we gonna address this and how are we gonna do it together? So really I'm really multifaceted because you know, you're talking about obviously macro to micro, yeah. Uh, and then you're kind of looking at the legacy piece. So like I talked a little bit about if you've had some difficult things, so maybe they've had a lot of um, competitive um, things happen. Maybe they've lost pieces of business. Maybe they've had some good management people that they've lost. You know, there, there's so many moving uh, balls at any given point. So you're really having to take all of those into consideration, I would think. Um, what, what kind of, what are some of the potential things that you see people like, let's say you have, you start with them. What are some of the resistances that you, that you not typically, cause I know every organization is different, but what are some of the things that you find? Oh, this, this, this is shifting or, Oh no, I've got a block here. It comes down to one fundamental thing. And that is about trust. So do the team members have an inherent trust for one another. And um, Patrick Lencioni, the author of Five Dysfunctions of a Team and uh, The Advantage, uh, as some of his more popular titles, um, talks about um, a lot of those concepts and how important it is to um, really make sure that, that everyone is on the same page. Um, talking about um, vulnerability-based trust. And so we often think of trust as predictability-based trust. I know that if I say I'm going to meet Roxanne at 5 p.m., that she's going to be there at 5 p.m. That's There's a certain predictability that if, if you ask me for a bio, I'm going to send it to you in a reasonable amount of time or whatever, whatever that is. That's the predictability side of it. Vulnerability-based trust is... Um, a, it's quite a bit different. It's quite a bit deeper. This is when you're working together on a team and I'm not afraid to say, you know what, Roxanne, I like your way better. Um, Roxanne, could you help me walk through this? Uh, and, and acknowledge our own um, shortcomings or vulnerabilities in, while being vulnerable. That is going to, and, and knowing that the people on your team aren't going to take advantage of that or, or, or put you down or think less of you. In fact, they'll think more of you. And one of the terms that I like to use is, um, I, we'll put a link to the video, do I have something in my teeth? And I, I say that because um, I, to me, while that's a surface statement, I believe that it's incumbent on members of the team to let 
other members of the team when they know when there's something in their teeth. And, and so while I'm saying that literally, I mean, figuratively, we have to be able to, to um, gently challenge the people that we work with um, because the worst thing is, oh, I knew it was going to fail. I knew it. I, I, I could have told you that from the get-go. Well, then why didn't you? Uh, you, you, you owed it to your team. You owed it to yourself. You owed it to your organization to be straightforward and, and honest if you thought something was going to fail. And so one of the techniques that we use um, when it comes to management is um, the, the concept of advocacy versus inquiry. And so oftentimes we'll approach a meeting ready to advocate for our idea. We know what it is that, that we want uh, to achieve with that meeting. Maybe it's buy-in, maybe it's information, maybe it's resources. And we will go in there prepared to advocate for it. That's how we've been conditioned over the years. But if we change that and, and people will still advocate for their ideas, but if, if as a member of the audience or a member of the team, we, um, instead of um, uh, staying silent, maybe we'll inquire with them. Oh, how do you think you might measure that? Oh, what, what resources do you think you're going to need for that? So using that uh, gentle form of inquiry to help um, strengthen uh, other people's ideas or, um, and, and I say strengthen meaning ultimately strengthen. In, in the short term, you might be pointing out something in someone's teeth, but you want to do that now. You want, you want to poke holes in something before it becomes customer facing or before it comes um, to that next level of that next tier of staff when we're talking about cascading messaging. So to me, it comes down to trust um, and understanding that loyalty is about um, being, being open to being vulnerable and, and open to building those trusting relationships because the power of a well put together team is just like a well-oiled machine. You, you see it, you feel it, and uh, it's, it's where the most powerful results come. Right, and safety, right? Like, I mean, to some degree, people have to know if I'm going to be, you, you call it vulnerability-based decision-making, right? Vulnerability-based trust. It's a patrick Right, so, so think about that. And if, but if I feel that I have not been um, given that capacity to, to speak my mind in the past, um, you know, and I've been shut down based on um, my past manager or a, a direct report, I'm, and I'm going to be more, I'm going to be more timid, right? Um, to be able to, to go to the table to say, you know, I really, you know, I don't, I don't agree with this. This is my perspective. So really it's kind of, sometimes you would just say it's fair to say, it's kind of like clearing out the old if, if, if projects have not been done in a certain way that would promote trust to clear it up, to say what went well, what didn't go well, what would you have done differently? What skills did you need? Um, all those things. It's almost like an, I call, I call it an autopsy, autopsy or diagnostic to look at it and say, you know, wow, what can we learn from it? And what things will we not do again before you go on? Because sometimes, you know, with companies, you know, things are quicker. There's, you know, people are having to output so much more quicker that they don't stop to really kind of celebrate and, uh, you know, relish the fact of what they achieved and did really well, but also to, to truly have an honest conversation about what didn't go well 
Yeah. Yeah. And so interesting, your choice of language. Um, my teams and I, after a, a significant event or milestone, we have what we call a post-mortem. So you're doing an autopsy and we're doing a post-mortem. And, um, and, and at the end of the day, it's really what uh, a great process to get um, that, that really important feedback. Disney talks about the importance of continuous feedback and continuous improvement. It can't just be all about feedback. There has to be that output. That, that goes along with the input. And so that's one of the ways that you can ultimately build trust, not just with your staff team, but with, uh, with customers, you know, take their feedback and, and uh, continuously improve. And if you don't improve on something that someone's given feedback about, then you have to loop back to them and, and explain why it didn't align with, um, with the broader goals or, or whatever it is. But, but to keep that communication um, cycle going is really, um, probably the single most important thing when we talk about building trust and cohesive organizations and teams. Yeah, because a lot of times managers will, will go to the tactical performance-based things and skills that have to be done and they forget to stop and say, okay, well, wow, you know, like just commending people, sometimes not for big, big things. Oftentimes, like you said, it's that gentle, wow, Roxanne, that was awesome that you were able to do that a bit differently. I know that must have been a skill that you had to work so hard at because you're not microscopic. And in my case, that would be really, really true. But for, if someone were to notice that and to commend me on that, I would be like, wow, thank you. I'm going to want to try a little bit harder next time. Yeah, right? and it's funny because oftentimes we take some of our greatest strengths for granted. And so through the lens of other people um, and by working with your teams and by celebrating those successes, we often learn um, very rich insights about ourselves and about how we process information and how we execute and how we build relationships and how we um, use our influence. So to make sure that that the feedback is as much personal and um as uh, to your point as well, you also want to build up some um, of those positive feedback uh, performance type issues before you're raising the negative type issues. And so, you know, Stephen Covey has an, uh, a generations old concept about the emotional bank account and how, and this is something that managers can use, um, but really everybody should be using in their day-to-day -day lives. And the concept says that we each have an invisible emotional bank account with each other. So you and I have one, Roxanne, I have one for you and you have one for me. And we can make deposits into those bank accounts. Sometimes it's as simple as a smile or, uh, you know, uh, offering to drive together to an event or whatever it is. Um, and sometimes it can be as complicated as being there for somebody during, um, you know, a, a, a time of need or, or something like that. So small deposits or big deposits into one's emotional bank account. And then if you have to coach someone, if you have to manage someone's performance, you've made those significant deposits as a manager so that when you do say, um, you know, this action wasn't um, behavior that's in line with our company values, it becomes a little bit easier to say that um, knowing that you've already built them up um, to, to know what, um, to know some of the things that they're great at and, and, have, and have that trust. So um, a really simple Stephen Covey principle that is still extremely relevant today, decades later. Yeah, and I often say, you know, three to one. You know, if you're going to say something that you need a, a change in behavior, you know, you might say, hey, Roxanne, I like the fact that, you know, you did X, Y, and Z. But, you know, what I wanted to eventually get to at some point is this particular thing that's happened on this project. 
you know, when do you think we can do that? Or I was thinking maybe we could talk about how you approached it and how I was thinking about it so we could eventually look at maybe um, making some tweaks. That's different from I didn't like the fact that you did X, Y, Z. And then, you you know, any positive after that's going to get lost in the model, right? Because <laughs> I've, I've already forgot. I'm already remembering what you told me I did wrong and I've held on to that. And, yeah. versus, and then you may have said three or four nice things after and I've lost, you know, that, that pebble of those things that you probably are giving me, which is still valuable. It gets, you know, lost in the shuffle. Now I'm just going to pivot a little bit because I think this is important because I know people are thinking because I'm thinking it and I've been there. What about the people that don't want to make the changes? What about the people that are, um, you know, disgruntled or, you know, they're present, you know, and we call it presenteeism where you're getting 65% of their productivity. They're, they're telling you what you need to hear. They're, they're supposedly trying to walk the walk. They're going along with Jessica Potts because she's the new consultant. What do you do with people like that and how do you approach it um, so it doesn't jeopardize, you, you know, what you've been contracted to do? Yeah, and that's um, that's a really, really uh, complicated answer. There's there's no one size fits all because the circumstances are always extremely complicated. So depending on how much influence that person has within the organization, how long they've been with the organization, um, you know, I've always said that turnover can be a really positive thing because it lets the management team sort of usher in some of the the the, the new things. But really, it shouldn't. Um, you know, to, to find somebody that much out of, out of alignment, um, which I've seen before, and it, it, it typically never ends well for that person. Um, but sometimes, sometimes there are extenuating circumstances where it, it becomes more of a performance management thing than, than it does a, a dismissal. So it takes a lot of one-on-one. -on -one. It takes uh, a lot of work with both the manager and the individual, um, and really trying to track down those intentions behind the actions and how to coach for performance that's going to align. So when we can outline, one of my clients has um, behavioral models. So they, uh, they outline the, the behaviors that they expect from, from their team. And um, one of them is called mature directness. And I love that. Mature directness. I've never heard that before. Isn't that a fantastic yes. phrase? Mature directness, which yeah. gives people permission to tell you when you have something in your teeth. It gives people permission to, to you know, display that loyalty or, or to be more vulnerable um, in the way that they uh, operate. So um, it's never easy, but it's ne there's no one simple answer to how to bring people on board that are, are not feeling on board. Um, the best way is to never hire them in the first place, but that's not always. <laughs> And that would, that would speak to the skill, kind, kind of vetting the right skills. And I know with uh, Gallup that you use, is that a, a, a technique that Gallup is used for is in hiring also? for Actually, no, it's really interesting. Gallup does not recommend using their profile, the um, Clifton Strengths assessment for recruiting, because what it will tell you is the, the presence or absence of talent. It won't necessarily tell you how that person is using their talent. So one of the terms that, uh, that Gallup uses is balconies and basements. So we can display the best of a trait, which would come through as balconies. We can display the worst of a trait, which would come through as basements. And so um, to, to use a, a tool like, like this one in particular for recruiting can be flawed because you could end up with somebody with the perfect 
personality or profile on paper, but then they're not actually living up to it. So it's not recommended as a recruiting tool. Right. And 45 minutes to an hour at an interview, most of us can do relatively well, I would say. Wouldn't you agree with that? And then, but the practicality of being in the actual environment and those types of things, it's, it's that much more. That's, it's, you know, it's like, here's the switch. It's live now. And now you've already hired, but, but then obviously there's probationary kind of periods and stuff for that reason. But that's a lot. Yeah. When you go ahead, you hire, you go through that whole process you know, you, you get the person um, onboarded and, you know, and then it doesn't work out within three months. That's a huge, um, you know, cost to the, to the company because then they have to go through the whole process again. Uh, billions of dollars yes, uh, absolutely. Dollars are being spent on, on the turnover business, if you will, um, not finding the right people aligned with, um, for whatever reason. Uh, one of my first district managers uh, said to me, hire attitude and train aptitude. And I've, it's followed me for the last, what year is it? I don't know, say 17 years, um, hire attitude and train aptitude. There are certain things that you just can't uh, train people. You can't train people to be happy. You can't train people uh, to feel fulfilled. Um, but that said, you can train people to be more in tune with what they already have. And, um, and to be satisfied with, with those types of things. So to try to find that connection um, becomes really, really important. And it starts- I love, I love your little two word one liners, Jessica. Like, I mean, how many of those have we gone through today? Oh, I got a whole bunch. I got a whole, all right up here too. <laughs> I, I love it. Cause it's like, oh, train attitude, not aptitude. But that is something I'm gonna remember. Higher okay. attitude, not aptitude. Right, uh, higher attitude. Higher attitude, train for aptitude is right. another- Absolutely. I, lo I love that because that's so, that's so clear. Like, I mean, how many times, you know, have you, you know, I know in various positions I've had, um, you know, to, to hire I've got a stack of 200 resumes, right? Yeah. And then you kind of think, oh my goodness, everybody looks the same generally on paper, except the odd person might come up to the top and then you, you whittle it down to 10. And then, you know, out of that 10, you're going to interview say six. And then, you know, and then really at, at the end of the day, somebody has to do something in that interview to really kind of shuttle ahead, right? Because, you know, both have, all have the same kind of educations. They've had massive, you know, experience, blah, 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 blah. But you're right. If you get a sense of that person of like, okay, you know, how do, how do they approach things? Or, you know, not the, what do they want me to experience, but how am I experiencing that? Again, going to my sense of how am I connected internally and what am I experiencing that person? That's definitely attitude, right? Yeah, and it's interesting because as you talk about that, I'm reminded of another Disney um, principle. Disney starts with the emotion that they want people to feel in their experience. And so it, it's similar with management. So Disney, um, uh, I wish I could remember exactly what they say, but um, uh, it's something about really awesome entertainment experiences. Um, we create happiness is one of their internal mottos. We create happiness. So they leave that as an empowering statement for their team that no matter what you do at the core of it, you create happiness. And it's, it's evoking an emotional reaction, um, which is what we need to do, whether it's in interviews or whether with, with a team or whether with the client, um, we need right. to evoke that emotional um, reaction, that emotional response um, that's going to help us get the results that we need. So very, very interesting. Yes, it is. It is. And uh, 
I could just imagine like with managers, right? You know, the middle managers, are, I would often say the most difficult point of a, an organization, right? Like, because they have to deliver everything from the senior executive and then they are, you know, responsible for, you know, the front line and they're, they're often being pushed on both ends. So their yeah. skills have to be quite, quite high, um, you know, and then like all those things that you're saying, they, you know, they're having to, you know, know their team, be able to manage things to, to you know, and other, the, you know, like you said, the, the core skills that you're calling them now, yeah. have to be heightened because, you know, if they, if they are not able to kind of have a good attitude, be able to connect with people, um, be able to read people, right? Because when you're on part of a team, I know you've been parts of teams, so have I. And I, once you get to know them, I know if you're off, you know, potentially, because I'm not, because I've gotten to know you. But if I don't know you and I don't have a benchmark for you, then I'm going to go, oh, well, well, I don't know where Jessica's at. And oftentimes that's how people manage. They manage without really knowing their people and something could be going on right in front of them and they're not even aware. And what does that do to trust, right? Absolutely. So the Absolutely. importance of, of understanding how that's going to make someone feel and then dialing back and saying, is that the response that I want to elicit from someone? So starting with that end result in mind and then backing up and saying, how can I get the, the output that I'm looking for um, in, in any aspect of life? Well, this, is, uh, this has been an awesome time. I'm so happy that you took the time to spend it with me today. Now, is there, I'm, I'm sure people listening or, or um, you know, tuning in are going to want to connect with you. Um, where can people reach you, uh, you know, to, if they're interested in, in getting any kind of um, assistance from you? I would say start with www.inspiredstrategy.ca. Uh, you can find me on pretty much every social medium. Um, I'm, I'm at Inspired Niagara on Twitter. My company is at Inspired Strategy. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we're, we're everywhere. Um, <laughs> so thank you. Awesome. Well, I've gained so much today. And um, again, you know, I talk about being authentic, which what is authenticity? It's about, uh, you know, listening deep down inside and ensuring that your internal world fits the outer world, which is really trust. And that's what from, you know, just as expertise, we're recognizing that we're, we're just people. We want to go out there. We want to do, uh, we want to do good things in the world, whether it's at home or in our, our uh, positions at work, we want to feel good with the things that we're doing out there in the world. So if you're ever wanting any additional information myself, my name is Roxanne Durhodge. I'm a mental health and wellness specialist. I'm a keynote, and I also do executive coaching and training. So take care, everyone. Thanks a lot again, Jessica, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.